The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Simon Jacobson now presents his lecture, The DNA of Your Soul. So there was this um, elderly Jew sitting on a park bench, very depressed, and his friend comes over and says, so why are you so depressed today? He said, my wife is very angry at me. He says, your wife is always angry at you. What's new? He said, no, today's something special. What happened? This morning, when she went to work, she asked me what I'm going to do today. And I said, nothing. You know, nothing. And she told me, that's what you said yesterday. And I told her I wasn't finished. <laughs> I wasn't finished doing nothing. So we have today a new phenomenon. The phenomenon of mastering the art of doing nothing. There are people actually aspire to being able to accomplish nothing and not feel guilty about it. That's the goal, of course. Now, this was not a, an option years ago when uh, we had to toil eight, nine hours in the field to be able to yield a sack of potatoes or rice or grain simply to survive. See, they couldn't afford the luxury of doing nothing. I remember um, reading, there's a man called Avram Chaim Rikover. You ever heard of him? He was known as Admiral Hyman Rickover. Considered one of the great admirals of the US Navy. He was born in uh, Europe, in Poland, and came over to the United States with his family due to the pogroms. And he rose in the Navy, there's only four-star general. The Army, there's five-star. So he rose to four-star general. He was called the, the, the father of the nuclear navy. He's an interesting character. So Avram Chaim became Hyman, Abraham Hyman. In 1957, he gave a talk, which, which I think can contextualize one of the big challenges of our time. It was a talk that he compared the state of uh, the standard of living in 1857 to 1957. And one statistic that really jumps out is this, that in 1857, 90% or 94%, I should be precise, of energy in the world was generated by human beings or animals. And in 1957, 
94% of energy was being generated by fossil fuels and by technology. Now, this may sound like insignificant, but it's tremendously significant because what happened with all the free time that humans were freed now that they can sit home and they, have a, they press a button. So the first thing he said, that is the explanation for the explosion of wealth, that the wealth generated in the 20th century is completely a different scale because suddenly you controlled 100 farms, great, but when you controlled 100 factories that can produce so much more due to industrialization, <coughs> wealth ballooned, exploded. But the second thing which I want to focus on is the leisure. It created this new industry called freedom, free time. So what do you do when you have free time? So if the human race had moved, how you think evolution should dictate toward becoming a more spiritual, more moral, more value-based, so then the, the time that was freed from working and toiling in a field would turn into creating a far more refined and higher consciousness within the human race. But it went the other way around. Now that we have a lot of free time, we have to fill it. And with that, you can explain many of the maladies and problems we deal with. Because when there's a vacuum, ask yourself this question. If you have a day and you really have to do nothing, there's no pressure, you have all the money you need, you have everything taken care of, you have nine to five, no expectations, what are you going to do for those eight hours? Um, you don't have to answer out loud. But most people will gravitate to the lowest common denominator, let's be honest. Unless you choose to live up to a higher standard. And I really believe that you can explain so, much of, so many of the problems that we deal with in society today as a result of this vacuum. And uh, so I, why do I, what's that, what does this have to do with DNA of your soul? You know, I was once giving a talk, and I was talking about something, and after about 15 minutes, people started looking. Maybe he uh, misread the title. You know, maybe this was the next talk. So I always check the, the program schedule to make sure, because you end up having a lot of talks. You don't want to end up in a room where everybody's expecting you to talk about suffering, and suddenly you're talking about uh, celebrations, you know. So no, so I didn't lose sight of the title. It's all somewhat of an introduction. Because, as I, could, I speak from my own experience, I always was uh, repelled and turned off by, preach, by preachers and teachers who would just teach great ideas that were very powerful, perhaps, but they weren't relevant. You know the one with the rabbi who gets lost in a hot air balloon? Two guys were in a hot air balloon. Not the rabbi gets lost. It's the other way around. The two guys get lost in a hot air balloon, and they're trying to figure out where they are. And uh, they see a guy down below, and they yell out, where are we? So he says, you're in a hot air balloon. Okay, then a gust of wind comes by and whisks them away. And one of them looks at the other and says, what was that? He says, that was surely a rabbi. He says, how do you know? Because what he said was true, but irrelevant. You know? Um, so since you probably see me as a rabbi, I'm allowed to write, make anti-rabbi jokes. That's one of the rights of an authority. Um, so uh, 
My point being, so I've always worked overtime to make sure that what I say is not irrelevant. I'm not saying I'm always successful. <laughs> um, there was a website called, by the way, uselessknowledge.com. Seriously, you can go there. It's not interesting stuff, but it's completely irrelevant. It's like, like, for example, the Cincinnati, I'm sorry, the, 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 the Cincinnati airport happens to be in Kentucky. It's important information, but it's useless. Like, why, what difference does it make? Um, or that uh, there's a main street in uh, Missouri that one side of the street is Kansas and one side is Missouri, and uh, alcohol costs a lot more expensive on one than the other. So maybe that makes a difference. So regarding our conversation, why is it important to know we have a soul in the first place? And I always ask myself that question. I want to suggest to you as well, if you really want to get to the bottom of something, don't take anything for granted. Because one of the things about having an open mind is don't assume assumptions. We all have our axioms. If you want to understand something well, you have to be able to explain it to someone that doesn't have the same assumptions as you. And that causes you to really look at it in a very uh, personal way. So if someone asks, who cares if I have a soul or I don't have? I've asked this, people have asked me this question so many times. At this point, I ask it myself. And that's why I began with this introduction. I didn't want to start just go, let's, I'm assuming everybody here probably believes in a soul, feels the soul. You know, I'm assuming also, again, these assumptions may be wrong. I'm also assuming that you're here at a JLI retreat. You're probably curious. You're sitting here at this topic. I'm sure you want to hear about the DNA of the soul. Even though some people like my sense of humor, maybe you came for the jokes. Um, but... Uh, the point, bottom line is, why do we need to know there's a soul? And I don't say it because I'm necessarily thinking that you're skeptical about it, but it's important, even if you're not skeptical, to understand what it means. What's the significance? Well, if, the, if doing nothing is, represents what a material world can look like when it doesn't have a soul, a soul is the, antith the, antithesis, to that, the antithesis to that is a life filled with something that you can't live with yourself if a day goes by and you didn't do anything. And I, mean, I don't mean to put anybody on a guilt trip. We'll talk about what means doing something. I'm not talking about necessarily being productive in the technical sense of the word, but that know that your life is driven by a calling, by a sense of urgency. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know about you, but many, many young men and women, and maybe not so young, don't have that sense of urgency. And it's actually a result of the blessings of our life, that we have a lot of free time. We're not escaping from enemies. We're not fighting wars. And the fact of the matter is, when you're living in freedom, one of the side effects is a lot of complacency because your values are not that crystallized. You know, during COVID, things may have changed a bit. But if you asked an average young man and woman, what are you ready to fight for? What are you ready to die for? And I don't mean necessarily physically dying. Something you really believe in that is un, uncompromising, unconditional. It's not arbitrary. Maybe yeah, maybe not. The answer would really be things that are completely superficial. Like, and I've asked this question. The answer would be this, my sports team, um, technology, sex, entertainment, money, Nothing that's permanent and nothing that is absolute. All things that are all a product of enjoying life, basically. So it's interesting paradox 
that the more comfortable we are and the more free we are, so to speak, when I say freedom, I mean freedom to do whatever you like, the less focused we are because we don't need to fight for anything. And when you don't fight for something for a long time, you start losing sight of what you should fight for in the first place. Now, I'm sure everybody can come up with good platitudes. I fight for my family, I fight for love, I fight for truth. We have causes that, and I'm not even suggesting all these causes are bad. Many of them are good causes. But there's a lot of energy going on that's being directed to really nonsense. I think I don't have to make a case for it. So to me, very simply put, why is it important to know you have a soul? Because that's who you really are. That's your true identity. You ask somebody, I ask somebody, okay, tell me, who are you? They give, you, they give me their business card. I say, but that's what you do. That's not who you are. Ah, but what shall I say? I've been doing it so long that what I do has become who I am. Think about that. Who you are should def define what you do. What you do has become who you are. So the ship is telling the captain where to go instead of the captain telling the ship where to go. The hammer is telling your hand where to go instead of your hand telling the hammer where to go. So we have many tools. We have an elaborate tool chest and a repertoire of all kinds of uh, arsenal of all kinds of resources. But who's directing the ship? Who's telling it where to go? A soul is the navigator. It's the purpose. To use business term terminology, if you don't have a, a vision and mission statement in your business, you have no business. It doesn't matter how much money you have and how many, how many employees and how many plans. It's the simple mission that's the focal point. In simple English, that is the soul of our lives. In my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, when I, the first chapter is a chapter called Body and Soul. Because I felt that before getting into anything, you have to establish who are you? What identifies you? What was the first question God asks the human being after God created Adam and Eve? Ayeka, where are you? Which really means not where are you physically, but where is your presence? You know, sometimes you're sitting with someone and they can sit right near you and you ask them, where are you? You know where they are physically. But where's your heart? Where's your soul? I don't feel you're with me. You're not present. And that was what God was asking. You're not present. I don't see where you are. What happened to your calling? You betrayed yourself, your mission, your destiny. I don't know if there's a bigger question than that in our lives. Yet we grow up in a world that even though many of us will ask the question at some point, why am I here? So firstly, do we even find an answer? And we probably move on to the next uh, project. You know, and I'll deal with why I'm here when I have some time, even though there's plenty of time. So soul is to, to demystify the word and de decipher it. The, uh, it's not just what the, the, the word soul has many different implications. It simply means the purpose and essence of your life, and that is what drives you. That's not just some extracurricular activity is the essence of who you are. Now, the analogy I give for it in the Torah Meaningful Life, based on the verse in the book of Proverbs, where it says, Ner Hashem nishmas Adam, the soul of man is the flame of God, like a flame. Look at a flame. A flame, its nature, is the closest approximation to what your soul looks like. It's always flickering. It's always restless. Good restlessness. It's always rising upward. It's transcendent in nature. It gives off warmth. It illuminates. So much, one little flame, 
will soon be lighting Shabbos candles. One little flame, which is so representative of Jewish life, Shabbos candles, Yom Tov candles, Le'elenu, in times of tragedy, we light a Yisker candle, a Yishama candle, menorah in the temple, Hanukkah candles, because a flame is the closest approximation that captures, that reflects the nature of a soul. So no one has ever seen a soul, but you sure feel it. So it's not just your biological force inside of you that gives you energy, that at least lets you breathe, and your heart is beating, and the rest of your functions are working, thank God. It's also the very core of who you are. I think a great example for it would be, think of a composer of a symphony, or an author of a book, for that matter, or an artist that painted a painting. So as the composer creates the music, the musical notes, the actual notes, and their sounds, that's the body. But the message, the sound, the music, is the soul. The message that an author will convey in the words. The words are the body. That's the way we express it. I'm using words right now, but what's the spirit of my words? What's the sentiment, the feeling, the spirit of it all? That's the soul. So think of God as a grand composer, a cosmic composer, and his musical symphony is you and I. So your body is the musical note, its sound, its, uh, its beat, and so on. But the music it produces, that's the soul. So when you're singing your song and you're expressing your inner core, you're expressing your soul. When you put it in those words, it's a lot easier to, uh, much more palpable and palatable because it becomes something we can identify with. You know, just as an aside, it's about language in general. As a speaker, as a writer, I'm always concerned with the words you use because words are, are loaded as well, even though words are necessary for communication, but words also have a downside to them. They create stereotypes. I can use a word that means, to me, a very innocent, innocuous word, but to you, you may go ballistic if I use that word. You know? So I just wanted to share, just really an aside, but it's not such an aside, it just helps us you know, get back to the soul in detail. So I will try to live up, you know, truth in advertising to the title of this talk. Um, I remember early on my so-called career. So I was giving, I still do the same class every Wednesday night, now I do it online. But those days, there was no online. It was the time when uh, mail was delivered by dinosaurs and donkeys and camels, snail mail. And um, you all remember that time? And we used a typewriter. Anybody knows what a typewriter is? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I began my class 40 years ago, actually. I started teaching in 1981, 41 years ago, to be exact. The core people that would come to this class were people from the arts and entertainment industry. And uh, mostly Jewish, some non-Jewish. So they had a very deep spiritual side to them because they were in the music, world of music and art, free spirits, but hardly came from tradition. You know, if you ask them, many of them would say that their, their spirituality came from uh, Zen Buddhism or a thing called, uh, that's not an acronym for Let's Start Davening, okay? LSD, in case you got to figure it out. <clears throat> yeah. Or put on tefillin, a pot. 
I have some more, but we'll save it for another time. We have a whole Shabbos to entertain each other, you know. Um, so, so, and here I was coming from a traditional background, Jewish background, but I obviously wanted to connect with them, and it was really fascinating, because as I said earlier, you learn most from people who don't have the same language as you, because you're not just part of your own little country club. It expands your consciousness and your horizons. So I realized that I was sitting in a situation that was at a disadvantage, because here I am, sitting with a yarmulke and a beard, and uh, trying to convey ideas from Judaism, from Torah, but I don't know what reaction they're going to have to words that I use, like their reaction to the word God, or the word soul, or Judaism, Torah, and so on. You know, I may remind one guy of an angry grandfather that schlepped him to synagogue in Yom Kippur, and he'd see me as that type of person projected on me, or of an irrelevant Hebrew school teacher that taught halal bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah lessons. Or maybe good memories. You know, we also have good memories. So I tried an experiment. This is just a tremendous lesson in life, and you'll see what real soul is, in my perspective at least. I didn't use any words, any Hebrew words, no Torah words, no religious words. I completely created my own dictionary. I didn't use the word God, because God itself is a very loaded word. Instead, I used, I used words like higher reality, the deeper truths, the essence. Oh, that's a good one, the essence. Because no one knows what you mean, but it sounds the essence of it all. Um, and if it was a particularly new age crowd, I used words like undefined layers of indeterministic energy or something like that. And, and instead of uh, Torah, I used the word blueprint. Instead of mitzvahs, connections. And instead of Mashiach and Geula, I used destination. So here I was waxing eloquent about reaching the deepest essence of who you are, of the cosmos, following a blueprint, making connections where we ultimately create seamless fusion between the inner and the outer, between form and function, between body and soul, between the indeterministic and the deterministic, into one beautiful symphony of harmony within diversity. Okay, how could anyone like uh, resist? And there I was pontificating week after week, and I, it's a whole language, and I was completely talking about Torah and God and all that, but no one had a clue. <clears throat> Maybe they did, but they definitely listened, and I must say, they were quite uh, taken by it. They loved it. They were bringing friends. It was like really great. I knew the day would come. So one day, one evening, someone, I don't know if you remember a band, a rock band called Jay and the Americans. Yes, in the 60s. Jay Black recently died, Oliver Shalom. He actually learned lessons of singing from Kasavitsky, the Chazan. That's why some of his songs are very cantorial. Yeah, you learn things at JLI. Um, and, uh, and he asked me, I know these classes lately have been really on a different level. Are you talking about God? <laughs> and I said, yes, but shh. Don't spoil it for the others. 
and it worked. It worked because I did not take anything for granted and we were able to connect with words that didn't separate us. Because if I say the word God, says soul, neshama, then you're dealing with words that you may mean one thing, I mean something else. I mentioned before in one of the other sessions, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Baditshev, who said to the self-proclaimed atheist, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. That's what I wanted to avoid. So even though, as I said, this may be a little digressant, but it's not in my opinion, because if you don't know what you're talking about with the soul, you can have a whole conversation and ultimately will not resonate and won't be relevant. Those are the key words. So with that said, you, each one of you sitting in this room, each one of us on this earth, everybody, everything begins with the soul. When you learn Hasidus, when you learn Jewish mysticism, you learn about the spiritual, about the esoteric, that's the first thing you know. Everything begins with the soul. The body comes second. We don't think that way. You wake up in the morning, first you feel your body before you feel your soul. You feel you're hungry, tired, all the other human experiences, material experiences. Then you focus and you say, okay, moda'ani, God return my soul to me. Because we're essentially, on the ostensible level, we're sensory human beings who are consumed with our senses what we see, what we hear, what we taste, touch, and smell. To the point that if I said to you right now, as an exercise, close your eyes and ears and taste, touch, and smell. Keep your ears open a bit because you won't hear me if you don't do that. What do you think would happen to you? So initially we think, I, I'll just disappear. No, you wouldn't disappear. You'd discover the real you. The you that's not stimulated by your senses. Because you don't need eyes to see yourself, you don't need ears to hear yourself, you don't need smell, taste, and touch to experience yourself. That's a bridge that connects us together, and we need it. It's necessary for relationships. In many ways, you can even say Shabbos is really an exercise of a journey within where we try to shut down that stimulation as much as possible, as much as humanly possible, because we end of the day we are still in bodies, and try to experience that voice from within. Every meditation, every exercise you find today, mindfulness, all those are all trying to do that, create a focus to travel inward. So when you know that, that that's your real core essence, then ask yourself, how much do you know about it? Even the human body, the human body, which is just five feet, six feet tall, approximately, 100, 150 pounds, we won't go higher than that. Sometimes a little more. How much do we know about this body? So we know a lot more than we used to know. But there's still the mysteries. Ask any expert, any doctor, any scientist. The brain, the size of the palm of our hand. How much do we know about this brain? And that's the physical brain. When you talk about the soul, we know far, far less. And we spend most of our lives, if at all, studying science, studying the body, studying the physical world, studying the science of the physical world, but how much time have we spent understanding the dynamics and the components that make up your soul, which is the real you, the essence of you. So in a way you can say Kabbalah and Hasidics, which is essentially contemporary Kabbalah, is the study of the soul. It's like you go to a doctor, you get a CAT scan or an x-ray, 
or other types of scans of the body so we can see what makes us tick. And if there's a problem, we can discover it, identify it. There's also a thing called an x-ray of the soul. So I want to go through that x-ray in a little more detail. Obviously, to cover it exhaustively would be difficult in this short time. But enough that it's hopefully it'll be intriguing enough for you to want to express, study more about it. Now, many of you may have studied some of this and maybe know it quite well. So it's not going to be just basic ABCs, but actually really digging into what, what you are comprised of, the building blocks of your very being, hence the DNA of your soul. And there is a real DNA. It's just not physical. Just like we say that the world is made up of many different objects, and they are in turn made up of elements, which in turn are made up of molecules, which are comprised of atoms and subatomic particles and sub-subatomic. You can keep going down the rabbit hole and we don't even know how far it goes. The same is with the soul. There's the outer expression of it. And as you travel inward, you can go into the molecular level and to the atomic level and the subatomic level. And people who are really on a spiritual journey have mastered to some extent that ability to go deeper within. The truth is prayer, real prayer, is a journey of the soul. It's not just lip service, it's not just words and just asking and beseeching God for your needs. It's a journey into those deeper dimensions. That's why it's not a surprise. I witnessed it not so often, but I've seen Hasidic Jews, rabbis, sitting under a talus on Shabbos for six hours davening. Now, it takes a lot less than six hours to read all those words. You see, you just go to any usual minion. But because they weren't just saying words, they were going on a journey into these deeper places and deeper states of consciousness. So I'm going to break it down into a few parts here. First of all, the dimensions of the soul. There are dimensions. And you begin from the outer and you travel inward, literally exactly like I just defined from the sub-subatomic through the molecular, through the atomic molecular and all the way to the elemental level. The same thing is on the soul, that there's generally five dimensions. And you may have heard of them. I'll spell them out in Hebrew. They're called nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida. So the medrash puts it this way, that the soul has five names. But it really means five levels, five dimensions. So on the external, on the surface level, they sound synonymous. But when you understand what they are, they're not at all synonymous. They're different dimensions. And I'll explain it in more detail. So let's start from the bottom up or from the outer in would be the better way to put it. There's the level of soul when someone says, what does it mean to be alive? So any layperson, and definitely a biologist or a doctor or a scientist will tell you, it means life is defined, you're breathing, the primary organs are functioning, the heart, the mind, and, um, uh, and that defines life. Now that doesn't tell you the quality of life, it just tells you that you're physically alive. A person, God forbid, can be a vegetable in the hospital and also be alive. So that we would call biological life. That would be the first level, nefesh, that you're simply existing and a living. You're a living organism. Then there's the next level, that you're not just a zombie, but you also have an emotional life, feelings. 
You feel things. You know, some people walk around, they say, yeah, I'm physically alive, but I feel dead. I have dead. I feel like a zombie, like I've said. What does that mean? No sensations. There's no feelings. So the next level is ruach. It's emotional life. The third is neshama, intellectual life, which is that your mind is working. Your mind is stimulated. Your mind is active. Sometimes we feel emotions we feel, but you feel your mind is blocked. Those are the first three. Those are what we'll call the conscious dimensions of the soul, the conscious expression of the soul. Then come two more, Chaya and Yechida. We'll call this the superconscious. This is called the transcendent forces at work that are not quite tangible in the sense where you can say, okay, it's expressing through intellectual activity or emotional or, as I said, biological, but rather... You're dealing now with something more transcendent. Like here would be, what is the meaning of your life, as I discussed earlier. And finally, Yechida would be the level that is the place where you're closest to the very core essence of who you are, like being at peace with yourself in that deepest place. It's the most intimate part of the soul and its connection with its divine source. And it's not really experienced in any conscious way, but it's there. To access that is obviously far more difficult than the first levels. So those are part of the map, the map of the general structure of a human soul. So when it says in the Bible, in the Torah, it says that God took a clump of earth and imbued it. He breathed into it divine energy, which is the divine energy of divine breath, he actually imbued it with everything I described earlier. So let's go back to the analogy of the composer. You'll see two different musicians playing a uh, brilliant piece of music. And one sounds unbelievable, the other one sounds not bad. Same music. So that same music can be played with a different, different levels of soul, with different levels of what we may call kavana, intention. That's an example. So you could go through the motions, but you're not really living up to your entire potential. So simply put, we go through our days, our lives, in uh, Hasidic thought, it will teach us that you don't just eat a meal. When you're eating a meal, all five levels of your soul should be interacting, which means you're not just eating to survive and keep your body, in, body healthy. You're also here to allow it to feed your emotional side of your being and your intellectual side and ultimately your transcendent side. So in other words, it infuses everything we do with a whole different dimension. So just by stating that, that already changes a person's attitude to life. It ex creates excitement. Everything you do is, is brimming, is filled with this potent energy of your soul. When people ask the question, about what you saw, for example, I, I sat at the feet of the Rebbe for many years. As you may know, that was my job, to remember the Rebbe's talks on Shabbos and holidays, retain it, and then repeat it, and then publish it. So what did, what did, you, what did you experience? You experienced a soul at fi on fire. When you see people that we say they have the sparkle in the eye, a certain passion. It's not just a passion about big things. Every little detail comes alive. You know, when you love somebody, even a slight touch 
is electric because it's filled with neshama. But our lives, I go back to my initial joke, our lives are somewhat often lethargic. We may go through the motions, but how much of the energy of how much you have within you is being expressed? So when you think of it, these five dimensions are really there for us to access. And when you see a person who's really fully in touch with their innermost self, so all those levels of soul are there in everything that they do, in every moment and every action. Now, that doesn't mean we all can reach that level in a moment. But when you know that's the potential, it can change things. So then you can ask yourself the question, so where do I stand? Am I on the nefesh level, on the ruach level, on the shama level, on the chaya level, the yechida level? Just to give an example, let's talk about love relationships. So generally speaking, we talk about three levels of compatibility that will define two people being attracted to each other. Shidduch, 15th, since it's the 15th above, I guess the appropriate example. One is physical attraction, sexual magnetism, something that draws two people together. That's the nefesh level. The next is an emotional connection. You can fall in love with an image of a model in a magazine, and then you meet that person, and there's no, nothing there, nothing clicks. There's no feelings. So the next is an emotional compatibility. You know, there's a feeling, something reciprocal, care, sensitivity, empathy. Then there's intellectual compatibility. Two people, they share ideas, respect each other's opinion, perspective, they can have conversation, can have good argument. Now, most cases, you tell people, what do you think about that? They say, if I had one out of the three, I'd be happy. I hope nobody here would say that, but many people say that. Two out of the three, that's a dream. Three out of the three is not even realistic, you know. Now, that's just the first three levels. So imagine a relationship that's not just a physical connection. There's some people connect very much physically, but it also has an emotional and intellectual dimensions. That's a pretty good relationship. However, that's just touching the surface of a relationship. Then comes the fourth, the chaya, what I would call spiritual compatibility. What does that mean? That two people share a vision for life. What kind of home they want to build, what kind of children they want to bring into this world, what kind of vibe when someone comes into their home? What's the vibe? What mark they want to make in the universe? Why is it different than the first three? Because the first three are subject to change. The fourth is already a transcendent element. It's not so much about, I like what you look like, or I connect with you emotionally, or bond with you intellectually. But this is where both, that's why we have a chuppah, a canopy at a wedding, because the canopy is above the bride and the groom. It's transcendent. It's a connection to the third partner. What is the purpose of life and how are we going to contribute to that purpose? And the yechida is really reserved for the most intimate connection where two people become like one. Yechida means oneness, total oneness. In the words of the Bible and the Torah, echad, where man and woman become like one flesh, physically but also spiritually, like what we call a soulmate. So when you think of it that way, you can develop a whole series of workshops, and I have done that to some extent, of teaching people how to enhance their relationship by first identifying, is it a nefesh, is it ruach, is it neshama, is it chai, yechida? 
And in each of them, you can always room for improvement and growth. On a collective level, that would be the general relationship we have with God. And what is that relationship? So every day of the year, we pray three times a day. You know why three? Corresponds to nefesh, roch, and neshama, because we, on a regular Monday and weekday, we can connect to the three conscious levels, the biological, emotional, and intellectual. On Shabbos and, holiday, and holidays, we add a fourth prayer. It's called Musaf. We introduce the transcendent. That doesn't mean you can't have it at all on the weekdays, except it's not as prominent. And once a year, when do we pray five prayers? Great. Yom Kippur, Ne'ilah, the fifth prayer. And what do we say that that prayer, all the gates are open. There are no boundaries. It's complete unified connection with the essence of the divine and the essence of your soul. Now, that doesn't mean it's not beating inside your chest right now, that Yechida. However, it's less harder to access. You could access it. All five levels are accessible. But it's a question of how easy and how many layers you have to deal with to get to that place. And I'm not even addressing now all the blockages and inhibitions and obstacles and fears and insecurities that even trap us to not even get to the first level of nefesh. So if you really want to do this in a thorough way, you have to also look at, are you even being soulful? I was speaking about someone who's already come to understanding that their soul is more important than their body. And then you continue to go on that journey. Most of us are challenged with, one minute, I have bodily needs, I have other needs, I have other things to address. I have to satisfy people's expectations and demands and their perceptions and so on. How many of us are struggling with the demons, real or uh, imagined in our lives? How, what we think other things, people thinking of us, and all that comes with that. just wanted to qualify. But on the other end, a person who is in the soulful journey is struggling, in a good way, how to climb this ladder, these five steps. And this is, each one of them is a whole story of its own, a whole volume of its own. I'm just laying out the basic building blocks. But I want to go one further step. And that is, so what does each one look like? When you, go, when you dig down deeper, I mentioned before, molecular, atomic, subatomic. What are the so-called particles that define each of these five levels? So just to broaden it, in Kabbalistic and Hasidic mystical thought, it teaches that everything is microcosm, macrocosm. Whatever exists within ourselves is also exists on the cosmic level, meaning in the worlds around us. That's why you find the concept, that I'm sure you're familiar with, of the three, four, and five worlds. Namely, you have, going from bottom up, the world of Asiya, which corresponds to Nefesh, the world of action, the world of Yitzira, which corresponds to the emotional, to, ne- to Ruach, the world of Bria, creation, which corresponds to the intellectual. And higher than that is the world of Atsilus, which is high, the transcendent. And higher than that is called sometimes Eilimus Einsof, the infinite reality, which corresponds to Yechida. So you have that, as I said, on the microcosm and on the macrocosm. And then, of course, everybody's familiar, or I assume you're familiar with the 10 spheres. How does that fit into this? So the 10 spheres as well are broken into five categories. You have what's called Chabad Chagas Nihi. Those are acronyms 
for the, for the, for the ten faculties or parts that every soul is made up of. Three intellectual ones, Chabad, that's Neshama. Three emotional ones, which is Chesed, Gvura, Teferis, love, reverence, and compassion. And then comes the last four, which are the behavioral ones, Netzach, Chayid, Yisrael, and Malchus, which correspond to Nefesh, to the more biological side. And indeed, a human body, a body itself, without a soul, I don't want to sound morbid, but that's a corpse. When a person is alive, you have these levels of soul beating inside them, and they're all made up of parts. So just as a body needs nourishment, we need food, drink, hygiene, rest, exercise, a soul also needs exercise. A soul also needs nourishment. And when you understand the parts that the soul is made of, then you can understand how you nourish. How do you nourish the behavioral? By behaving in a way that's aligned with your soul. So I recently came up with an idea called immersing yourself in your spiritual spa. Spa is an acronym for study, prayer, action. And those that are more familiar with the text will know that that is the three pillars upon which every, the world stands. It says, on three pillars the world stands. And the world here means both the cosmic world and the microcosmic world, which is every human being. And what are the three pillars? Torah, study. Aveda, prayer, which is service of the heart. Aveda Shebelev. And Gmil's Chasadim, doing good deeds, kindness, actions. And what are they? There you have Neshama, Ruach, and Nefesh. The, it's cognitive conditioning, emotional conditioning, and behavioral conditioning. And we can look at ourselves, just as I said before, going to a doctor, there's also a soul doctor. And what does that teach you? That let's look at which part of your life needs some. Uh, Immersion in the spa. So then, hence, spa, study, prayer, action. Some of us need the enhancement in our behavioral, some in our emotional, some in our cognitive. The truth is we all need all of them, but you want to focus. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the book I did. It's a different time of the year called The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer. It's the 49 days between Passover and Shavuos. And we talk about the refinement of your character. And what does it talk about? Chesed of Chesed to Malchus of Malchus. So I wrote a book that defines literally the X-ray of our emotional structure, the spectrum of our emotions. So, for example, many people know are, are very loving. They're very loving. So evaluate your love. Love can be very beautiful, but also if you don't know when to stop. Some people don't know how to stop. Restraint, the gvura of Chesed. That's why our love can spoil somebody. A love could also suffocate someone because that's like chesed that's untempered. So when you go through the 49 days, you actually have an opportunity to exercise, to evaluate, and then, and then take the this, this spiritual vitamins necessary that nourish and enhance each part of that part of your spiritual makeup. So you see from this that this is an elaborate process. This is like literally can take over your whole life in a beautiful way. 
both the five dimensions and how they're comprised and the makeup of all the different the, all the different steps that I spoke about. So really the point that I want to lead to is that this is all happening right now inside of you. Most of us are probably not aware, but inside of you are voices and forces that are waiting for you to feed them. And when you suddenly fear, experience some type of, let's say, anxiety or fear or insecurity, it's always a symptom of your soul telling you you need to do something about it. Just like pain. We don't like pain, but pain is a red flag. It's a signal. It's telling you to do something about it. The soul can't speak to us in physical terms, so it speaks to us in emotional terms and in psychological terms. Every anxiety is your soul crying out, help me. Not necessarily a distress call, depends on the level of anxiety, but definitely a call that's telling you, I need to be fed. Sadly, we live in a world where we were not taught most of what I just said. So besides the fact that we don't even understand our own voices, we don't even know how to feed them. So what do you do when a person is in that state? Well, this has been essentially the, the essence of my whole life. My whole life I grew up with this. Once I began to appreciate, and I continue to learn to appreciate these, this whole uh, inner system, is you, I try my best to help people figure out firstly where do you stand and then what you can do and make the recommendations of the different soul vitamins, soul exercises, soul spa, and the different terminology to nourish and feed and nurture our very essence of who makes us tick. So yes, we know there's a world of therapy. We know it's probably a trillion dollar industry, no one even knows. And especially if you include the pharmaceutical side of it, the medicine and how people medicate themselves. If you include all the addictions and all the other things that people struggle with to somewhat relieve their existential angst and pain and loneliness, and um, then, I mean, it's essentially really the, so much of what life is defined by. When if a person was able to access and feed that part of their soul, how much would be preempted? How much would be prevented? So what we really need is a revolution, to be very honest. A real revolution that doesn't begin when we're adults. Frederick Douglass said, it's infinitely easier to bring up a healthy child than to fix a broken adult. If we could create a generation of children and teach them about their souls, and they're natural. Remember, they're natural souls because children by nature are much more driven by imagination, by idealism, by dreams. It's we knock it out of them by saying that's not practical. You know, we turn them into mathematicians, into technicians, figure out how to maneuver and make money in this world. I'm not taking away from any of the value of that, but we basically turn them from soul into bodies instead of, instead of fueling their fertile souls and their fertile imagination. But imagine we can create a generation that understands themselves in this way. So the preemptive, the preventive medicine, that would create, who knows, the value of that. But when we do face a challenge, you have resources, you have a way of analyzing and saying, one second, is this a nefesh thing? Is it a ruach thing? Is it an emotional? Is it a cognitive? Is it a transcendent issue? Is it a combination of some of them? And then specifically drilling down into, is it chachma, bina, das, chesed, gvura, teferis? I gave some examples, obviously a lot more. And all of them will give you a snapshot of what you're like. One of my big dreams 
might, share, might as well share it, is to, they're mapping the, the human genome, right? How about mapping the spiritual genome? Like really creating a comprehensive map that will give us the DNA of every individual soul so you can look at it and say, ask certain pointed questions and say, okay, here are my strengths, here are my weaknesses, here are things that need enhancement, here's what needs to be harnessed. How that can create a literally a paradigm shift in the way we see ourselves. Really a new psychological model, which can utilize everything that exists out there. That's good. But nevertheless, add this dimension, which is the gift that God gave us. The blueprint I mentioned before, blueprint. The blueprint of Torah, a blueprint of your soul, a blueprint of your psyche what makes you tick. And when you understand it well, it literally can transform your life. Just like when you go, you get an x-ray of your lungs. I mean, no one should ever have to need that, but if you get an x-ray of your lungs, you'll see the doctor will put the x-ray on the screen and near it, an x-ray of healthy lungs. So you can juxtapose and say, ah, here there's a, God forbid, a blockage, here there's a problem here. So it's critical to have a picture of the so-called, um, the quintessential archetype of what a healthy spiritual genome looks like. And then you can say, okay, now how, where do I stand in regard to that and grow toward that to create a far better and healthier human being? To me, this is what is called Mashiach and Gula. I mentioned before, that's the destination. But Mashiach and Gula is essentially each one of us living up to the healthiest version that you can possibly be. To the healthiest version each individual and the healthiest version that we can be collectively as a community, as a people, as a nation, and extended into the entire world. And that's what Mashiach is, a healthy world, where each individual organism is all playing its role, living up to its greatest potential in the nefesh ruach neshama, chai yechida. And that's why Mashiach is compared to yechida, because that's the ultimate, where everything is unified in a seamlessness, which is seamless, it's unified but also diverse, like a healthy human body. We have 35 to 75 trillion cells, but in a healthy body, they're all coordinated. So it's not about eliminating the, our, our distinctions. It's about appreciating them and seeing them in this um, healthy context. So maybe this Shabbos and maybe this whole weekend and this whole retreat all help us enhance and grow toward that. And uh, together we help each other, the synergy of playing our music of the cosmic symphony. Everyone have a great uh, continued Erev Shabbos as we now travel from Friday into Shabbos into a more spiritual place from the Nefesh Ruach Neshama into the fourth dimension. And maybe we could even hit the peak of uh, Yechida from time to time. Good Shabbos, everyone. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and torahcafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.